Hi, I'm Bryn Thompson. This is the Coburn Ventures podcast. It's for our clients, for investors, for our community of industry leaders, fellows, and friends. This is a group that loves the craft of investing, studies change, is dedicated to business analysis and leadership, and all that's behind the scenes of that work. I hope you enjoy it. Today, we have Zach Dykdwald joining us to help us understand the global young consumer, and specifically all the ways we may be misunderstanding the global consumer with regard to young China. Zach wanted to know what the future held, so he went to live in China. Since then, he found himself becoming a bridge for decision makers in the Western world to understand the rapid pace of change in China. Zach will walk us through the framework that will help break down some of the major differences we may not be fully understanding, and he offers a multitude of important observations along the way. I hope you enjoy it. About two weeks ago, we had this great conversation, I think in one of the NAV calls, on the global young consumer. And Zach, you were um, the fire starter that kicked it off for us. And it was such a great opportunity to go a little bit deeper in your framework and your experience with the Young China Group, which you founded a few years ago. So um, can you tell us, can you walk us through um, your observations? And actually first, maybe, Zach, how did you get to be this bridge between, you know, kind of like the conventional thinking that maybe a US or European based investor might project onto what's going on with the global young consumer and and bridge that to what you see actually happening in China. Sure, so, you know, when I was 20, I first went to China uh, as a science fiction fan, as goofy as that sounds. I was deciding where to study abroad, I was at Columbia, and I was looking at sort of the pamphlets for Europe and they look like a history book, you know, study the, the, the past. And I saw a pamphlet for Hong Kong and it looked like the science fiction books that I like to read. Specifically, actually, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which of course became Blade Runner. Uh, and so I went to China more or less on a whim. But as I began to travel more through mainland, I, I realized very quickly that the China I was experiencing was far different than the China that gets described to us in the media and even reverberating off of the executives who, who you know, spend a week or two in Shanghai, come back and, um, and, and dis- describe what they see. And, so, and decisions off that. <laughs> exactly. And you know, so it became pretty clear when I was younger as I moved back to China and, and my goal was to really get as deep into the, the culture and the people as possible that there was this sort of old China and young China, this, these old, not just old people, by the way, but these older stereotypes. Um, and because China develops so fast that if you're not updating your stereotypes at China speed, quote unquote, um, you'd, be, you'd be missing out. And so I became obsessed with this idea of young China, which of course means young people. There are 400 million millennials in China compared to our 80 million in the United States. So 5X, there's actually more young people in China than we have in the United, than we have people in the United States and Canada combined. So it's a consequential cohort. Um, But as the country was evolving, we kept seeing China as this one big thing, either a big government, a big macro economy, or just a big splotch of red um, 
in in large part because of the way it's it's portrayed. It's portrayed as sort of a, a 1.4 billion nation um, working in lockstep towards uh, sort of this hardy kind of communist, kind of capitalist, depending on you know what day uh, future. And and that's just not and the case. And whatever so, the five year plan is. Exactly. And so surprisingly, you know, I wrote a book called Young China. It came out in 2018. Um, and I, I didn't know who, you know, I was, I was spending a lot of time in second and third tier cities in China. I wasn't sure who would call. Um, the financial community in particular called first um, because this consumer in China, you know, there's a lot of noise about the American consumer, particularly the American millennial. Um, there's a sexiness about the American millennial. In fact, marketers are actually tired of hearing about American millennials, Gen Z. We're already ready to move past Gen Z. But um, there, there wasn't much understanding of the Chinese millennial, uh, which data was starting to show was driving Chinese consumer markets. And the consumer markets were disproportionately driving, um, driving the Chinese markets. Uh, and so I, who you know, essentially had written something sociological, at best, something that could be described as a, a work of behavioral economics, was suddenly learning about you know the China A shares products that these guys were trying to push, and and trying to trying to figure out how my work sort of intersected with theirs. Um, it was a great surprise and actually far more enjoyable than I than I've ever expected. Uh, and I've gotten to travel the world through this. So I've been to you know I've I've gotten to speak sort of on on six continents back when we used to go places. I don't know if you guys remember that. Um, and everywhere I went, people were always asking me. Okay, how did how did Chinese millennials compare to American millennials or British millennials or Egyptian millennials or Indian millennials or Nigerian millennials or Brazilian millennials? And uh, I, of course, have no idea. But I, I began to develop a framework through which those comparisons could be made possible. If if we filled in the information, if we filled in the gaps through a series of longer, in-depth conversations we could create a, a real comparison because ultimately people only know what they know. They only know what's around them. And so unless you can contextualize it, you know, the size of, of the Chinese cohort versus their cohort, the, the influence, the impact, and, and you know, I don't want to leak too much into the framework already, but um, without those touchstones, it, it became sort of a fool's errand to try to explain to people around the world just how important this cohort in China uh, or any cohort around the world could really be. Zach, is, was there one point when you're doing the study abroad in this science fiction picture that you said that it could dawned on you that this this could be a career, or it was like, oh my God, there's something really big here that, like, there's a distinction, there's this huge gap of reality versus perception, and I might be part of filling in that arbitrage, so to speak. Was there a moment where you? like someplace or we're like, oh my God, I might actually do this. So it was when I, I was watching, I was actually um, in Chengdu watching a Fareed Zakaria episode. Uh, and there was a, and Fareed by the way, is incredibly forward thinking on China. He's actually quite intelligent on it. Um, but there were, I was watching the talking heads and, and began, and I don't watch a ton of TV there, but was beginning to sort of, not yell at the screen, but, but preparing myself to do it. You know, I was doing this sort of posturing and I was kind of getting out of my seat a little bit and I was like, uh, the, the, the at least psychological fist shaking. And um, 
on my on my next trip to New York, I was I, I was in a room um, with uh, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company who began to tell me about China, and it became very clear that he didn't know what he was talking about. Um, and same with the free talking heads, they don't know what they're talking. I mean, it's not that they don't know what they're talking about, but what they know is so limited because the media spends 90% of its ink on government. What we know to talk about is government. But for the vast majority of people in China, government is a, is a very small portion of their lives, which is almost impossible for us to imagine. Um, but for the everyday person, you know, who they are, wh what they want for themselves, their family, their country, what they want to buy, what's seen as worth it, uh, what they hope their future looks like. Uh, these are personal questions. These are about people and, and what the world so clearly lacked and I think still lacks is a people first understanding of China. So I began to be committed to this idea of a, a people first understanding of China for a better world because it's very hard to be empathetic towards the, towards the CCP. It's very hard to develop feelings towards a macro economy. <laughs> but if you understand people, if you understand that they want a better life for their, their kids, if you understand that they're looking to expand their horizons through global travel, to interact with a wider world than maybe their parents or grandparents had when they were growing up, um, suddenly these are, these are these are emotions that you can relate to. And they also happen to be the behavior that's driving the, the, the fastest growing and rising consumer economy in the world. Okay. Bryn, is it okay if we actually dive into the framework? Let's dive into the framework. So, so what happened? I got really, really lucky, as everyone knows. So... Uh, we wanted to have a gathering uh, on the, one of the navigation or a couple of the navigation spots on thinking about how you think about um, different types of consumers and this younger generation and how even we define that generation. Like it's not, you know, people under 18. It's like, it's much wider. And so we had a bunch of people on who had great different perspectives. And I actually asked Zach the night before, hey, do you have a framework for thinking about this? Like, I was totally fishing. And he said, uh, yeah, I could put something together or something like that. Very humbly. Then when we actually did the session, he had it like nailed into these like, boom, 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 boom. Mm -hmm. Four things that made so much sense, but I hadn't organized my brain around that at all. And uh, I found it as a, as a framework so helpful. So I was thinking maybe we can dive into the four components and both from like like uh, I was just thinking about the global perspective of the consumer, and obviously you have so much content about China, but just this isn't just about China. This is a framework for thinking about spending and patterns and generations, and I don't know. Should we go from there, Bryn? That's great. So the one thing before we start on that, that really um, I just loved learning about this from you, Zach, was... Um, you were talking about the difference in defining what a generation is in the U.S. versus China. Pew takes a very active role in it now, but the idea of a millennial was originally created by marketers, I think, in the I think in the late '80s. Um, it's a marketing term. I mean, the, the whole idea of these generational cohorts in general is are terms that can group people with a with a similar enough background where you can feed them the same advertisements and they, and they all might be motivated to go buy hula hoops at once. They respond um, in the same way. Right, and <laughs> it, it only works if the people in that, 
cohort, be it millennial, you know, boomers are really the first ones to really get the full generational marketing treatment. Um, it's actually something that my, my family and my dad is, has been involved in for, for his whole career, um, focusing on, on baby boomers. And, um, and it's, it works in Western Europe and the United States because the historical and sort of socioeconomic um, and, and cultural backdrop is similar. But when you try to say that, you know, what was happening in the 1950s in the United States versus what was happening in the 1950s in China, you really lose the plot. Um, and so our idea, usually when people talk to me about Chinese millennials, and this is, I don't want to put a wrench in our conversation, um, because I, I think it totally is still applicable because we are, and ultimately you're, you're comparing people of the same age and you can do that. But if you're using millennials, Gen Z, Gen X, boomers, if you're using this framework to try to, to, to categorize Chinese, the Chinese population, you've already lost because yeah. you're using an inherently Western framework um, based on our historical timeline to try to squeeze this, this population in for whom it doesn't make sense. So, so, so in, in China, in, in oh, our please. vernacular, in the, the signal noise ratio, our desire to reduce and to reduce something to simplicity, we lose massive amounts of information. And then we're surprised that our predictions don't map up and go, ah, you know, sometimes it's more complex than, you know, as simple as we'd like it to be. Exactly. And, and you know, by the way, generational, these, these labels are still mostly used by marketers. And so in China, rather than have a sort of 20 year unit, which is millennials, um, they typically divide the generations by every 10 years. So you have the post 50s generation, the post 60s generation, the post 70s, post 80s, and post 90s is typically the generation that I really focus on. And, and Ling Ling Ho, which is the post 2000s, the aughts. Um, but when you're really talking to savvy marketers, they do it by every three to five years. So like, what sneakers are the post 95s thinking about these days? Um, they say, uh, what is it? Uh, in China, every three years, there's a generation gap. Wow. Think about that. Wow. That's, I would think about it, just transposing it to the US. That's like saying, my children are in elementary school. That's like saying, divide the elementary school in half. They're having totally different experiences. Wow. Yeah, and, and it's a pace of change reflection. Um, there, China has experienced a full order of magnitude faster change than, than just about anywhere on earth, which is really hard for us to contextualize and, and I don't wanna to get too deep into it today, but um, there's good data uh, about this. Um, I have something called the Live Change Index, which shows the amount of per capita GDP, um, the amount of per capita GDP change or growth a particular generation or cohort has witnessed in their lifetime. Um, and those who were born in 1990 in China have witnessed a full order of magnitude greater per capita GDP change um, than American millennials, uh, than British millennials, than Nigerian millennials, than Indian millennials. It's surprising um, the rest of the world has more or less changed at a comparable rate. Uh, China has experienced you know, a, 10X, a 10X difference. And that difference has made, has transformed <coughs> excuse me, has transformed the traditional generation gap into a generation gulf. It's it, the pace of change has me meant that the distance, and this is something that I, I talk about in this framework, 
the, the distance in between generations, the depth of this generation gap uh, is distended, is exaggerated, uh, is far more pronounced than what you than what you would have in in sort of European or or North American uh, economies. Zach, could you walk us through the four components? Because I, I found those very great tools at looking at U.S. as well, which you know a lot of people totally. Are, we were talking about a, a, but yeah, go through the four components. I thought it was so helpful. My pleasure. And by the way, a lot of the work I do ends up comparing them people in in the U.S. and China. And um, one of my closest friends is is probably the 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 foremost expert in the US on, um, on American millennials and Gen Z. And, and we have long and thoughtful conversations. I actually sent her this framework before I sent it to you, Pip, and she was kind enough to give me some, some feedback. Her name is Kim Lear. I definitely recommend checking out her work. So these four pillars, um, I, I sort of thought of them as four orbits of inquiry um, because they're not, they're not pillars. It's, uh, pillars are something that are already filled with stuff. Um, the, the idea of sort of orbits of inquiry, which is, I, I guess, a little bit, so, it, it sounds like its own science fiction title, um, like. but it's, it's areas of thought. It's areas that you should be thinking about. So there's four parts. First, generational power. How much market impact can youth cohorts or any cohorts make in their respective countries? Uh, not all millennials are, are shifting or, or driving economic change the same. So how much actual power does this generation have? Uh, within their within their population, and you two. Well, you describe oh. the U.S. We overestimate that power, and in China we underestimate it because China, you know, you have a whole a whole family supporting a single child sometimes, and those aspirations. So, ironically, it twists on its head in a way that I was surprised by, just because we hear so much about what are the. But in this comparison, not to get too down into it, I want to get to number two as well. Yeah, it's it's one of the more disappointing things for folks to realize that, um, and and this is actually uh, to realize that in in America, millennials and Gen Z might make trends, but boomers still move markets. The wealth is too uh, focused at the top of our of our family tree to allow millennials and Gen Z to to really be moving markets the way that you have in China, which have uh, far more uh, fluidity around the way that money moves, which is actually later on in the pit. You can't, we're, you can't, you're, we're, we're going to, we're going to dislodge people from the framework model. If we get go back to the framework. <laughs> All right. Sorry. So we have generational power. Yeah, right. We need order no. here. We need order. <laughs> so I'll go through them first and then we can, we can dive deep into them. Okay. I think, so, I so the first one is generational power. How much market impact can, can a particular cohort have? Second is generational distance. How broad or deep are the generation gaps in, in, in a country? Uh, third, generational continuity. I think this one's underrated. Uh, we often forget that each generation has parents. And so as an American, I, for generational continuity, you'd be asking, how much does being your parent's child impact or drive the way you see the world? How much does being a boomer's kid uh, affect your worldview? And the fourth, which I actually think could be the most important when you're considering market impact is intergenerational financial fluidity. How does money move between generations? Because ultimately what's sort of hobbling the American millennial from, from, from real market impact is, is an American understanding of how money ought to be passing through the generations, when it ought to be passing through the generations, 
um, and and what is what is good or bad about the way money is shared between parents and kids. Let's let's talk about that for just a minute, and then we can hit any of these others because they're all very very rich. But that I I love this insight, Zach, because. I, in the in the U.S., I would say these are kind of strong words, but I would say um, the cultural norm is you're almost shamed for not being able to make it on your own as a child or descendant, and there's pride in being able to kind of earn your way through life. But this is an, it was so interesting to see how you framed the numbers that that is uh, whether or not that is the prevailing theme. You know, I'm a I don't know what generation I am in. I just turned 44, so whatever generation that puts me in. But that's a Gen, that's Gen a, X. You're, okay, you're an thank you. <laughs> so I now identify as Gen X, and um, but that's sort of what I was. Um, that's how I was raised, at least. And I carry that quite a lot, even in decisions I'm making for my children right now. Um, but this you know, results into, um, you said 60% of household wealth in the US is with the baby boomers, 60%, 20% with Gen X, which by now, according to like economic theory, Gen X in the US, we should probably be earning more <laughs> or have more because if I'm already in my 40s, that's usually when those are prime spending years, but also prime earning years. And then 5% with the millennials and millennials are having children and whatever. So it's, um, that's, that's interesting to me that that's how the number, the numbers are startling. The numbers are startling. And, and frankly, it's, you know, hats off to you know, people decide whether or not it was Warren Buffett or Albert Einstein said this on any given day, but the sixth wonder of the world, right? Compound interest uh, yeah. over over a lifetime when you're right. older, um, you've you've accrued uh, mm -hmm. if you're a savvy investor or or invested literally at all um, yep. over time that that wealth doubles and triples. The major difference, though, is whether or not you share it, and it's it's absolutely an American ideal to not have your kids need your help to sort of kick people out of the nest and, and let them and let them make it on their own. And, and it's a two way street. The kids want to get away from mom and dad like very, very quickly. <laughs> this totally. Is, and this is in this is in the tax code as well. Hmm. of Our country, you, it's very hard to move money between generations. Right. There's, there's limits on what you can do. And it's not it's not just when you die when you pass on, but through the life, it's like there's a, a background noise saying, "Yeah, that's improper. We're going to cap it." Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. No. It, I mean, it's so I went to China when I was 22. I, I was um, my my senior year when I went back from study abroad. I, I was at a school where everyone is sort of were like philosophers and writers for our first three years, and then we turn into bankers and consultants um, our senior year. So I, I was in a consulting interview where I more or less snapped and decided to go to China. Um, the first year in China, I was making $1,000 a month. Um, my mom, when she came and visited me, I, I was sleeping on a, on a bed in a basement apartment on the outskirts of a second tier city um, called Suzhou. It's, it's outside of Shanghai, so it's relatively close. I never really made it to Shanghai from there. Um, I had three Chinese roommates. Um, we didn't have running water in our bathroom. My, my bed was bamboo fibers. Um, woven together and stretched thin across a wooden frame. Um, my mom sat on the bed and cried. And my mom actually wanted to help me. My mom wanted to 
month, you know, I was making thousand dollars a month. You want to give me five hundred dollars a month or whatever it is. But I, who who was raised on this sort of American ethos, was was not hearing it. Was not having it. I didn't want to touch her money with a with a hundred foot, you know, bamboo pole or whatever it was. It's absolutely ingrained into the way we're raised, the stories we're told, um, the 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 sort of myth of the, the myths that that were raised on and in a place like china it's just not uh you have an older generation who was defined they're, they're known as chukwu the die the eat bitter generation in the 60s 70s and 80s working incredibly hard for incredibly long hours you know there's the reputation of at the nike factory in the 90s people were asking for more hours at the end of an 80 Day or an 80 hour work week. And the idea was we're going to work harder so that the next generation can have a better life. The next generation is here. So the idea that they're not going to share their wealth now with their kids, you know, they, they had to eat bitter when they were young. They want their kids to be eating hot pot. They weren't able to travel abroad, uh, see the world. They want their kids exposed to a far wider breadth of experience and culture. They weren't able to be educated. Uh, in 1979, only 11% of adults had a high school education. This is the tail end of the Cultural Revolution. So they are sending their kids in mass to study abroad. It's why one in three of all study abroad students in the United States come from China. One in three. And so there's all of you know. There, there's this idea of, of intergenerational continuity, like the which is the third third orbit of inquiry pillar is better. I, I, I would go back and edit that in retrospect. <laughs> um, but it's, they've inherited the dreams from their parents and they've also inherited the financial capability because the craziest thing is if you look at the actual numbers around earning, millennials in China earn far less than the millennials in the United States, significantly less. But because of this, um, intergenerational financial fluidity component, they're, they're, they're able to spend on par or more. And because their numbers are 5X that of American millennials, they can have a greater market impact, uh, especially in this next decade to come. And you don't have to spread that over five kids or four kids or three kids. Sometimes you're spreading that on, on one child, I'm guessing. Well, that's that's the other major component here, and and it, they say demography is destiny, right? Um, if demography is destiny, China has long been tampering with its own fate. Uh, China had the largest baby boom in the world between 1950 and 1980. China's population increased by 440 million people, so more than the current population of the United States. That was a population increase. I think most people assume that China was born into the the 20th century as a billion person nation. It wasn't. In 1950, the population was only 540 million. So by 1980, when the one child policy began, um, that population had ballooned to 980 million. They had, a, they had a real population crisis. They handled it incredibly and delicately with the one child policy. So on the back end of the biggest um, baby boom in the world, you had the world's biggest baby bust. Mm -hmm. So a population pyramid, right? Where you have more young people and fewer old people um, because of the one child policy and frankly, an incredible longevity revolution where the older are living longer. Life expectancy has risen from around 40 in 1950 to 74 today, which is incredible. Um, this population pyramid has flipped on its head. And so you have four grandparents for every two parents for every one child. 
And if you want to know how the consumer revolution in China is possible, considering the average wage, you have to understand this upside down pyramid because it works like a funnel. It's a funnel for dreams, right? Which we just went over. Uh, it's a funnel for attention. I want my kid to have the best, you know, they need to have tutors and whatever it is. Um, it's a funnel for resources. So again, educational resources. One of the, when we were doing interviews for, for people around um, the one child policy, once that relaxed in around 2015, um, we asked people, were they gonna have a second child? What we heard very consistently was that no, because a second child would mean that each would have, would have half of the resources wow. and half of the opportunity to get ahead in, in a very competitive culture. Um, and of course, it's also a downward funnel for, for money and, and leisure. And so, you know, somebody making a thousand bucks a month um, or $1,500 a month uh, can, can afford an iPhone, uh, despite the fact that it, it disproportionately takes up uh, a huge amount of their, of their annual earn uh, because their parents want them to live better. And um, it's that a weird cultural question. Is this my, the point of life? My last question is, is there one question, not the answer, but is there one question that you're excited to dig into next? that's really on your mind that you're looking to study, if, if that's okay to even to reveal. Is there something yeah. that's like, ah, if I could really know the answer to this, this would advance my thinking a great deal about this. Might be a good way to, to complete for today. Sure, so I just wrote an article that should be coming out in the middle of the year for, for HBR that has actually opened more doors than closed them. It's, always, it's created more questions than answered them for me. Um, and I want to know this idea of the culture of innovation. Um, I'm really interested in culture and, co and cognition, how where you're from drives the way you think, right? And, and I think that that definitely comes out in, in this article. Um, and so I wanna know how where young people in China are from has defined their attitudes towards innovation um, because ultimately the future of China, actually for those same demographic reasons I, I described, are dependent on this young generation's ability to innovate, to create more value, to support uh, an unwieldy upper demographic pyramid. And, and so it's this question of, of, of China's innovation advantage, which I, which I talk about um, in this article. Also, is, are the cultures of innovation um, backed in the culture of wherever you're from radically different um, in, in China versus the United States? And if so, how? Just to review the four parts of Zach's framework, it's generational power, generational distance, generational continuity, and intergenerational financial fluidity. And one of his comments that I'm still thinking about is that if you're not updating your stereotypes about China at China speed, you're going to come to conclusions that are far off the mark. So you can find Zach at the Young China Group, or you may see him on an upcoming NAV call. Thanks for listening. <laughs>